The work of the church is to write a new song a song that actually speaks to equality. The work of the church is to actually not conduct business as usual. The work of the church is to make sure that the descendants of Angela are actually counted. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Baptists Without an Adjective. Our regular episode earlier this week, Tuesday, was a prayer service from the Baptist World Alliance's annual gathering earlier this year in Nassau, the Bahamas. And it was in relation to the Angela Project, a three-year effort between the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the National Baptist Convention of America, and the Progressive National Baptist Convention to mark this month the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in what is now the United States, named for Angela, who was among that first group. So this week, there have also been services by several Baptist churches in multiple states emerging out of the Angela Project to help us reflect on this occasion and then also begin to build for a better future. One of those services occurred at First Baptist Church in Jefferson City on Monday night, August 19th, and I had the opportunity to participate in that worship service. So what we're going to do here is play the majority of that service. I took out the hymns that were sung during the service, Lift Every Voice and Sing, My Eyes Have Seen the Glory. So what you're going to hear during the service are some introductions from Doyle Sager, lead pastor at First Baptist Church and a columnist for Word and Way. You'll hear... Scripture reading and prayer from Cornell Suddeth, pastor at Second Baptist Church, historically black Baptist congregation that you'll hear a little bit more about during the service. You'll hear some comments from me as I detail some new research about connections between FBC early pastors and leaders and slavery. There'll be some reflections and thoughts from Cassandra Gould, who is the executive director of Missouri Faith Voices and the pastor at Quinn Chapel AME Church. And then there'll be a litany of confession that was written by Sherry Mills, Black Baptist leader in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was published by Simmons College of Kentucky, historically Black Baptist College there, and they've been really key leaders in the Angela Project process over the past three years. So we have part of their litany that they wrote for this occasion, for this anniversary. At first, that will be led by Hannah Coe and Jan Watson of First Baptist, and then another part will be led by Jeremy Seacrest, a priest at St. Peter Catholic Church. Hannah Coe returned to also do the closing declaration of that litany before Doyle Sager and Cornell Sedith came together to do the last closing part of the service. So that's a little bit of what you're going to hear. I hope you find this meaningful as we reflect even more on this important anniversary and how we can build a better future by being honest about our past. Welcome to our space this evening. I'm Doyle Sager, the pastor here at First Baptist Church. And on behalf of our congregation, I want to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and say how happy we are to have you here for this very special occasion. Tomorrow, August the 20th, 2019, marks the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved African on the American shore. Her name was Angela, and tonight we weep for her and for all who followed her. We're grateful for your presence on this uh, eve of a very difficult and sad anniversary. 
want to give you some background that in 2016, three national Baptist bodies met to do some planning. The National Baptist Convention of America International Incorporated, the Progressive National Baptist Convention, and the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the denominational home of our congregation here at First Baptist Church. Out of that meeting, the Angela Project was born. Leading up to this momentous anniversary, national gatherings have been held each year in major cities. This historic worship is a culmination of those efforts. Our service this evening was written by the staff of Simmons College of Kentucky and Historically Black College. We're honored to have so many from our community assisting in worship leadership. It is my prayer this evening that we will all be blessed and challenged and moved to live more deeply into our faith because of the time we've spent together tonight. Again, God bless you and welcome. Good evening. First of all, let me say thank you to Pastor Sager for uh, inviting me to be a part of this uh, great celebration. And even as we come, as Pastor Sager has indicated, uh, we um, remember uh, what has happened in the past. It has been indicated that if we uh, don't know our past, that we are fairly destined to repeat it. So again, thank you, Pastor Sager, for uh, coming and uh, bringing us together as a community of faith, even on this evening that we do remember our past, that we might have a brighter future. Reading for you from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, and I'm reading from the New International Version, fourth chapter of Luke, verses 14 through 21, from the NIV Version. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he wrote up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let us pray. Gracious God in heaven, first of all, we come to say thank you for Jesus in whom we live and move and have all of our being. We thank you for Jesus who you sent that he might reconcile us back to you. And for the purpose in which we come, we say, thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for our past. We thank you for our present, and we thank you for our future. But we come right now in 
situations around the world and our nation and even our communities and unfortunately sometimes in the faith community where there seems to be so much division, but we come, dear God, looking ever to you. We are lifting our eyes to the hills from us cometh our help, believing that all of our help does come from you. So we come asking, dear God, because again, your word reminds us that we have all sinned and come short of your glory. But for the opportunities that you give us just such as this, to unite in faith in you, but also in faith in one another, we say thank you. Bless our coming together to God, that it might be pleasing in your sight and a sweet aroma to your nostrils. In Jesus' name, amen. During the National Angela, Gathering, Angela Project Gathering in Birmingham, Alabama in June, one of the speakers quoted black novelist and playwright James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it has been faced. History is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. If we pretend otherwise, we literally are criminals. To face our history here in the present, we must speak historical truths that may be difficult or uncomfortable. But another way of putting Baldwin's remark would be what Jesus taught. The truth will set you free. So as we gather here for this service at First Baptist Church in Jefferson City, let us speak the uncomfortable truths about slavery right here. An analysis of the U.S. Census data helps us glimpse and give us a glimpse into who enslaved other persons. This is incomplete data as it only provides a snapshot every 10 years. But even with such limited information, we have much to confess, lament, repent, and repair. I'm going to give a shorter summary, and I would invite you at the end of the service, we have a longer document that outlines some of this history in more detail that you can take home to read and reflect upon. Of the first seven pastors of FBC, six before the Civil War and the first one after, Four of those seven held people in slavery. The first pastor, whose portrait you can find just around the corner over there, he's the one that looks like Abraham Lincoln, but apparently that's where the similarities ended. That first pastor in 1840 had three enslaved persons, and he served as pastor here that very year. There's no record in the census date of the second pastor owning another person, nor is there for the third pastor, However, that third pastor after he left eventually ended up in Louisville, Kentucky. With the clouds of war on the horizon, he preached in support of slavery. In fact, he became the de facto leader of the pro-slavery Baptist in Louisville. In 1861, he was elected from Kentucky as a member of the first Congress of the Confederate States. The fourth pastor at FBC held two persons in slavery in 1850. By the time the Civil War started, he was a pastor in Mississippi, and he served in the Confederate Army as a chaplain. There is no record in the censuses of the fifth pastor holding enslaved persons. The sixth pastor who arrived at FBC in 1859 had three enslaved persons in bondage in 1850. Ten years later, as he served here as pastor, he again had three enslaved persons, but they were three different people. He left FBC suddenly in 1861 to serve in the Confederate Army first as a chaplain, 
and then as an officer. 30 years later, he bragged in a letter how his regiment had never surrendered during the war. He wrote, I had the good fortune never to have lowered the Confederate flag nor the banner of the cross of Jesus during the entire four years of my service. The seventh pastor arrived as the war ended and as FBC looked to rebuild after the building was used during the war by the Union Army as barracks and then a horse stable. We soon sold that building to the congregation now known as Second Baptist Church, which had been created in 1863 by black Baptists, most of whom had been part of FBC along with their slaveholders. After years of FBC leaders pleading with the federal government, FBC eventually received reparations for the old building damaged by Union forces, but that had since been sold to Second Baptist. That seventh pastor, of course, did not have enslaved persons while he was here, since they had all been set free. But he had previously enslaved two persons in 1850 and seven in 1860. In addition to four of the first seven pastors being slaveholders and three of them serving in the Confederacy, we also know that eight of the 11 white charter members were slaveholders. That group included a pre-Civil War mayor of Jefferson City and a future president of William Jewell College, both of whom were slaveholders. Another early church leader at FBC donated the land on which our church now sits. He held two people in slavery in 1850. Ten years later, he apparently still had those two as well as four other enslaved persons. So from these 17 early leaders of FBC, we find a total of at least 54 enslaved persons. We would certainly find many more among the dozens of other members in that first quarter century of the church's existence. Now, I have not mentioned any names yet, and that is intentional, because I want you to instead focus on the names of a few other people. We do not know the names of most of those who were part of this church while enslaved by other members, but we know a few. In addition to the 11 white charter members of FBC, there were three black charter members. They were likely enslaved as there were only 21 free blacks in Jefferson City in 1840, three years after this church started or about 1.8% of the population. Meanwhile, there were 262 enslaved blacks, or about 22.3% of the city's population. And while the records are a bit inconsistent, we do have a sense of the first names of those three. Unlike white members, only one name was given for the black members in the early church records. A woman named Jenny, a man named Adams, or perhaps Adam, and a man called General. Immediately after the church organized, five new members joined the Charter 14, three white women and two black women, Millie and Phyllis. And we know that one enslaved young man who was held in bondage by the man who donated this land joined a black regiment of the Union Army during the war. And that formerly enslaved young man was named Lewis. Jenny, Adams, General, Millie, Phyllis, Lewis. As we call out their names, let us remember their descendants who still experience systemic racial injustice. Jenny, Adams, General, Millie, Phyllis, Lewis.
Good evening. I am Pastor Cassandra Gould. I have the privilege of pastoring the oldest African-American entity in Jefferson City. On Sunday, we will celebrate 169 years. We have those names to call out as well, except our history um, starts just with a couple of folk who found themselves enslaved, a woman by the name of Violet Ramsey, who found a way to buy her own freedom and to then purchase the freedom of her husband, Elijah, and later donated a little log cabin over on Miller Avenue, which is now the site of the Central Motor Bank, so that a place called Quinn Chapel might be possible. This time, 10 days ago, I was in Ghana, um, place where slave ships pulled up to gather my ancestors and bring them to this place known as the United States of America. I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist as found in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of your homeland. We responded, how can we sing the songs of our God while in a foreign land? If we forget our homeland, may our right hand forget its skill. May the tongues of our mouths cling to the root of our mouths. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider home my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done for us. I imagine that if Angela was asked to sing a song, Today, maybe she would utter the words that Langston Hughes wrote before there was MAGA. He wrote, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free America was never America to me. Let America be the dream, the dreamer's dream. Let it be the great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man or woman be crushed by one of above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark, and who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor 
white food and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in what ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying needs, of work the men or take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the former bondsman to the soil. I am the Negro sold to the machine. I am the Negro servant to you all. I am the people humble, Hungry, mean, hungry, yet today, despite the dream. Beaten yet today, oh pioneers, I am the one who never got ahead, the poorest worker bartered through the years, yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a surf of kings, who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone, in every furrow turn that made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the one who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's pain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa stand. I came to build a homeland of the free, the free. Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay for all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we've sung and all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again and the land that it has never been yet and yet must be the land where everyone is free, the lands that's mine, the poor man's, the Indians, the Negroes, me, me who made America whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me an ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. For those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take our land back again. Oh, America, oh yes, I said plain. America has never been America to me. And yet I swear by this oath, America will be out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies. We, the people, must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains of the endless plain, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. If we're going to make America again, I think it starts with those who represent the church, the church that went to my beloved Africa and built a church right over a slave dungeon. The church that 
forcefully took people like Angela from Angola and for other unknown, unnamed, uncounted, countless people, according to EGAI, um, uh, Brian Stevenson's uh, The Lynching Museum, Equal Justice Institute, there were 10.2 million people who look like me who were brought to America after August 20th, 1619. And there were 2 million mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, grandmothers, cousins that perished on the way. And we have no idea about the number of those that perished in the dungeons of the enslaved. But here we are, the church, the same church that is able to name history, countless history of slave owners, the same church that took God to a place that God already started, the same church out of the arrogance of white supremacy and white privilege thought that they could invent inferiority and tell people who look like me that we were not human. What is the work of the church in 2019? What will be the work of the church in 2020 when we probably will engage in the most contentious election in most in postmodern times? What is the work? Is the work to commemorate really sad days, to make ourselves feel better by offering mission to places where people have less? Is the work of the church merely nuanced in our reports about our food pantries? And yes, we certainly should have food pantries. Or is the work of the church to actually redeem the soul of America and to redeem the soul of the church by actually, maybe the church starts with a form of reparations? What does it look like for the church to lead the way in the country, to actually change the narrative, to change the statistics of the number of black and brown bodies that perish in streets every day? What is the work of the church? Will we continue to comfort ourselves by having difficult conversations, but not actually changing what we do. In the Psalms, it asks holy people to sing, unholy, to sing holy songs in unholy places. When I went to Ghana um, this last time, my second time in the last 18 months, um, this time I did something that I didn't have an opportunity to do last year went to a place called the Ascend Manso, um, known as the Slave River, the Enslaved River. And um, at some point um, really soon, I'm going to um, convene an um, event around the trip. But the river is actually two rivers that confluence together. And we were really struck by the fact that um, the river on uh, the left side was a mighty rushing river. It reminded me of metaphors in the Bible around uh, rushing waters. And that river was the river that Angela, even though she came from Angola, 
probably had her last bath. It is known as the river of the last bath. And it is in that place that enslaved mothers and grandmothers and aunties and fathers and uncles and grandfathers were chained in a single file line to each other. They came from all over the continent, including Central Africa, um, Angola and other places like Angela did. And they were brought down to the coastline in West Africa, where Ghana is, which was then known as the Gold Coast. They were brought there. And the last thing that they got to do on their own soil was to take a bath in this river. I can't even explain the emotion that was felt there at the river. And it was interesting as it is a confluence in the side of the river that the ancestors were lured in to be washed for this unknown journey. As I said, the river is just rushing. The pictures that we took there, everybody remarked that there were images in those pictures. And I believe that there was blood in the water, that there was the anguish and the trauma of the ancestors crying out, singing a song, asking what even in 2019 will the church do on the other side of the river? The space that they invited us in to return to bathe in the water as an act of paying homage to the ancestors. It was still and it was quiet and it was calm, but that was the space that according to those in Ghana who hold the history that the people did not bathe in. And so that was the space that nothing had happened in. And they tell the story of, about how the water raged because of the anguish of the ancestors in the water. And yet they found themselves after a long pilgrimage, after going through the door of no return, not to ever return home, they found themselves in this place that would later become America, trying to hold on to a little memory of what it meant to be free. A gentleman, uh, I went to Africa this time with a large group of friends from all over the country, and one of my friends remarked that he's, he's, he's a 35-year-old professor, and he said it was the first time as a black man who was born in America that his body was ever free in a space that the ancestors were not allowed to be free. I believe that part of the work of the church is to go back to the river, to go back to a place. Um, we used to sing a song, um, at, well, wait in the water. God's going to trouble the water. Everybody probably knows that song. We are the people that God is waiting on to trouble the water. We are the people that will redeem the blood that was lost in the transatlantic slave passage but not just that blood, not just the blood that was shed at Point Comfort in 1619 and the years past, but the blood that was shed in Missouri, 
the blood that was shed even in Jefferson City. And there's a connection even to the blood that's shed in the streets of St. Louis, Kansas City, and even Jefferson City because of the trauma that lives in the bodies of black and brown people. What is the work of the church? The work of the church is to make that which was unholy, holy. The work of the church is to write a new song, a song that actually speaks to equality. The work of the church is to actually not conduct business as usual. The work of the church is to make sure that the descendants of Angela are actually counted even when it comes time for an election and census. The work of the church is to do that which Brian started standing right here to call a thing a thing, to name the blood that lies on our hands and to try and redeem humanity. The work of the church is not just to dismantle walls that are attempting to be built at borders, but the work of the church is also to dismantle this mythological wall that separates church and state that was never designed to keep the church quiet, but to keep the church safe from the meddling of the government. The work of the church is to speak loud, to act bold, not just to feed the least of these, but to change the, the situations and the conditions that make the least of these possible. Angela doesn't get to be unenslaved. We don't get to resurrect her and to change her life. But we do get to maybe make a difference in the life of a black and brown child, even here in Jefferson City, where the school board does not look like me, and most of the people in the classroom don't look like me, but many of the children do. The work of the church is to actually change the course of history so that not just 400 years from now, but even 40 years from now, that our grandchildren are not reading poems that were written more than a half century ago that still mean the same thing. The work of the church is that there are still not people who are being detained in places that look like slave dungeons. How do we sing songs of home in a foreign land, it means that we all have to get back to home. And home is a place that all of God's children have a name. All of God's children are counted and all of God's children are included. I'm reminded of the late Dr. Vincent Harding's image of a river. He used the metaphor of a river in relation to the struggle for justice, describing the currents of a river in terms of its long, continuous movement, sometimes powerful, sometimes tumultuous, rolling with life, and at other times meandering. Covered with ice and snow of seemingly endless winters, all too often streaked 
and running with blood. It is possible to recognize that we are indeed the river. And at the same time, the river is more than us. It is generations, millions of people who had to wade in the water, waiting for the people of God to trouble the water, to redeem the blood that was lost. Thank you. If you'll please stand for the litany of confession that you will see printed in your bulletin. We remarked at the beginning of the service that it's not often that we get to join together in a litany of confession that is designated based on the color of our skin. You'll notice um, the designations written here and we ask that you would respond accordingly. On behalf of Europe, and the Western world, we repent for the enslavement of black people. We repent for kidnapping you from your native land of Africa, putting you in chains and under the brutality of the whip, forcing you to lie down, chained together in the dark, damp bottom of cargo ships for months where millions of you died as we transported you to America to be exploited as free labor in the cotton fields that built white wealth. On, beh on behalf of black people, we forgive you. We repent of the hatred and unforgiveness that we have harbored toward you. For the enslavement of black people and for injurious actions that you inflicted upon us through multiple generations. O oh Lord, have mercy. We repent, forgive, and strive to move forward, governed by the mercy of Almighty God, who in Christ Jesus forgives all sin. As we have heard in the powerful reflection of that has been given to us this evening, but also the power of God's holy word. Let us spend some quiet time calling to mind how, in responding to the power of God's grace, though we cannot change the past, through his grace, he who makes all things new. The future may be different, but it may indeed be imbued with grace and justice and love, mercy, and forgiveness. And might we together pray together the prayer of commitment. Lord, we have humbled ourselves before you. You said in Isaiah 58 to do this and the lights would turn on and that our lives would turn around at once. You also said that when we pray, you will answer, and that when we call out for help, you will say, here am I. Lord, we beseech you, come among us. Please remain standing for the closing declaration that you'll find printed on the back of your bulletin. I will read the voice of one and you will read the voice of all, or we will read the voice of all together. 
We are the voice of one crying out in Jefferson City, Missouri, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in Jefferson City a highway for our God. Every valley in our city shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places in Jefferson City shall be made straight, and the rough places shall be made smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in this place, and all of Jefferson City and all nations shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You may be seated. I want to take a moment and thank all of you who participated in worship leadership this evening for your contribution. And I want to thank each of you for taking time on a Monday evening to be a part of this very historic and important evening. It's been a joy to share. It's been a burden to share, but it's been important for us to share. As you well know, our work is not done. Brian Stevenson, who's already been referenced, observed slavery did not end in 1865. It just evolved. And we have a lot of work to do. And we look forward to doing it together. It's my prayer that this service will be the beginning and not the end of our work at creating the beloved community. As Brian mentioned, there are uh, more detailed and expanded copies of some of the history that he read and shared this evening. They're available on the communion table. And we pray that you will uh, uh, ponder this evening and this experience in your heart, and you will find ways of putting feet to our prayers. Pastor Suddeth, if you would come join me as we all share together in the reading of our unison benediction. Let's stand together. Heavenly, Heavenly parent, parent, make, make us, us one. one. Just as you and the Lord Jesus Christ are one, create our numbers and gather your people to pray. Let the Holy Spirit move freely, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall accomplish it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. As I noted, you can also, in episode 86, hear another Angela Project-related service that includes a daily devotional that was also written by Sherry Mills, who wrote the litany that you heard part of in this service. You can learn more about First Baptist Church of Jefferson City at fbcjc.org. And you can find that information sheet that we passed out during the service that I referenced about the FBC early pastors and leaders who were slaveholders at tinyurl.com fbcangela. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And if you've enjoyed this program, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook or head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. If you have any comments or feedback, you can send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to donate to support this program, greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. Whatever you give will help the production of this podcast as well as our website and monthly magazine. Thanks for listening.